This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft, that idea is made manifest. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Alice McDermott, author of the craft book, What About the Baby? Getting the individual words right is so important because these are the things that will evoke this particular word. Change the sentence, change a, a detail, and a different world is evoked. We'll be back with Alice McDermott after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. 
And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My guest today is Alice McDermott, author of eight novels, including Charming Billy, which won the National Book Award and Pulitzer Prize finalists that night at Weddings and Wakes and after this. Her stories, essays, and reviews have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the New Yorker, Harper's, and elsewhere. For more than two decades, she was the Richard A. Maxey Professor of Humanities at John Hopkins University and a member of the faculty at the Sewanee Writers' Conference. McDermott lives with her family outside Washington, D.C. Her new book, What About the Baby? Some Thoughts on the Art of Fiction, contains 16 essays on the craft of writing, most adapted from lectures she gave teaching college or at writers' conferences. The book covers such topics as sentences, starting over, all drama is family drama, connection, and memory, among others. We began the interview with Alice McDermott sharing why the time was right to write a craft book on writing fiction. These were lectures that I delivered really over more than 20 years. Many of them at the Swanee Writers Conference and other lectures I was invited to deliver. And I really never thought of these as anything that would see print. Um, I've always thought of them as kind of conversations, although since they were lectures, I was doing most of the talking. But they were still conversations with inspiring writers, other writers, students. And and then I, I retired from teaching at Hopkins and my editor, who knew I was delivering these lectures here and there, was always saying, you know, what's going to happen to them? What are you going to do with these? You know, it was just like, it was like a conversation. But he sort of pushed me a little bit and said, you know, do it for your students, do it for people who heard these and would like to revisit them. So I thought, why not? They were all in a drawer somewhere. And of course, as with anything in writing, you said, oh, it won't take much time. I, I can do that. <laughs> you know, that'll be a little side job uh, to the novels. And then you realize, you know, over 20 years, there's some work to be done in putting together some thoughts you had two decades ago um, or over the course of two decades. So it was really just um, sort of a celebration of the end of my uh, formal teaching career. Did you look back any over any from those 20 years that you didn't include because you'd like changed your mind about how you thought about something? There are many that I didn't include, but really not so much that I changed my mind. Actually, it was it was really the delightful thing was how much I loved every single excerpt I had used while teaching. I didn't change a single. I didn't say, ah, that's not so good. Ah, you know, I was sort of infatuated with Virginia Woolf in those days, but she's not that good. You know, that was really the the revelation for me was, was how these these sections of marvelous novels and short stories that I thought were inspiring remain inspiring. The first essay, uh, What I Expect, I had actually delivered. Um, it begins with the story of the three firefighters who were killed um, on a Sunday in June of 2001. And I delivered that lecture in July of 2001, before 9-11, before 343 New York City firefighters were killed. And in the intervening years, I have heard from so many people who were at that lecture and remembered the story of the firemen on 9-11 and in the, in the months and years after that. Some people thought I was somehow prescient because I started with the story, the tragic story of the death of three New York City firefighters. Of course not. So I felt I did have to acknowledge that in the essay. So, so there was some rewriting to be done um, to update an essay like that. In that essay, you talk about sort of art arresting time and the importance of story and, and language as the voice of beauty in the world. Language was something that pervaded all of your essays, like the beauty of language and the idea that you acquire language through your life experience and you're putting that on the page, even if it's not direct, it's like language is the siphon. Yes, indeed. Um, as I point out, you know, um, so often you'll hear from beginning writers, uh, young or old, um, who are writing novels and say, you know, I, 
I don't want this to be autobiographical. You know, this isn't about me, which is lovely. Yes, that's that's a great um, that's a great ambition. But I always have to remind them um, the way you use language is autobiographical. Um, the way you shape a sentence, the the metaphors that come to your mind, are all a product of how you acquired language in the first place, and how your language was shaped over your life. So, who taught you your first language? What phrases did they use? What was the rhythm of the conversation around you growing up? What did you read growing up? What got into your head? All those things um, shape. Uh, your own individual and irrepeatable <laughs> um, way of using language, which means your way of telling a story. So um, all writing, um, and in some ways, especially fiction writing, because there's so much freedom um, to use language to um, fashion a sentence in, in a way that you might not find in a newspaper. All of it really is, is a portrait of the artist. You didn't write about this specifically, but how do you feel like voice comes in? Like you, you've you written so many novels. I don't know if you think they have the same tone or not for you, like because you might be hypercritical of your work or if we just develop a voice and that's our biggest strength. I'm just wondering your thoughts about voice. It's very hard to define it is hard to define, and yet, kind of like what they used to say about pornography, you know it when you hear it. <laughs> you know, you know a particular writer's voice when you hear it. Um, you know Faulkner. You know, um, you know Morrison. There's a distinction. Voice used for different purposes in different stories, different storytellers, different narrators, uh, multiple narrators. But yet, I think there's always the the unique stamp of the particular writer, and I think that's um, that's sort of the wonder and the beauty of it. You know, um, it's it's one of the reasons why I grow impatient with. Um, so, what's the best book? <laughs> you know, people, what's what should I read? Like, if there was one novel that you think I should read, what um, we need uh, multiple voices, um, because each is so unique in the literary arts. Um, even even a, a novel or a story that's written in in imitation or in, um, in, in some redoing of uh, another writer's work will always be made um, particular by the, by the particular writer's voice, because language is particular to each experience. If you're writing sincerely, if you're trying to write cliche, that's something else. I think the two that might have something to do with sound and you write that that writing is a journey into sound. And I, I loved how beautiful that was. And it is it's kind of about maybe the music, the lyricism. Um, and I know you've been around a lot of music in your life, too. And I, I'm just wondering about you know, alighting on that idea of journey of sound and, and what um, you could share about that. Yeah, that's E.B. White's phrase. I shouldn't take credit for that. It's a wonderful, yes, there is a journey. And, and again, I think that's, as you're pointing out, that's very much tied to voice and individuality. But, but there is, there's a rhythm. There's a rhythm to storytelling. There's a rhythm to sentence writing. Um, there's a rhythm to each paragraph. There's a rhythm to one chapter, to the next chapter, to the next chapter. I think all that is part of um, what makes the literary arts both essential um, to, to that pleasure center <laughs> where, where we enjoy the arts, music and, and, and visual arts uh, and the literary arts. Um, and, and I think, but I think it's also a kind of incantation, um, you know, that, that idea that through language alone, you are calling up an entire world and human beings in that world. Um, and somehow I think that's, that's why getting it right, getting the language right, getting the individual words right um, is so important because these are the things that will evoke this particular word. Change the sentence, change a, a detail, and a different world is evoked. Um, so it does, I think it, you know, it's, it's the silence of the page. It sometimes seems um, 
quite opposite what happens when we listen to something, uh, an orchestra or a, a trio or a single voice singing. But somehow I think they're, they're, they're very much the same. It is uh, this incantation of something that speaks to us even though we can't quite define it except in the experience itself. It's very difficult to describe music. Even if you're good at it, there comes a point where you say, wait a minute, you just have to hear it. Um, I think that's the same with, with good writing. Wait a minute. I can tell you how great this paragraph is, but you just have to read it. I always wonder about that. And we can talk about sentences in a minute, or maybe this, is, this question is integral to the sentence because the sentence are kind of like the notes that make up the rhythm. But I wonder if you've ever had this experience where maybe you write, you sit down to write and you're in a certain mood. It's, it's almost like a bad hair day or a good hair day. And you've, and you've written and you've written and you, you feel the rhythm and you feel the rhythm. And then maybe the next day you're like, what? There's no rhythm. Has, does that happen to you? Yeah. Yes. I think it happens to all of us. Um, you know, there's something wonderful that Eudora Welty said. I don't think I quoted her um, anywhere in the book. I was probably in one of the essays that I didn't include. Um, sh she talked about um, when you're in the throes of composition, um, you have the sense that you hear the next sentence before you know what the words are, that it's a kind of echo that comes off one sentence that leads you on to the next. And I think in order to achieve that, um, to get to that, that sort of spot, that sweet spot where you're hearing the rhythm of the next sentence before you even know what the words are, which in some ways means before you're even quite sure what that sentence needs to say. I think in order to get there, you do have to kind of be in a zone and maybe writing um, not so much with an overriding purpose, but sort of putting yourself at the service of the language and the sentence that came before, and the sentence that seems to be developing in the silence that follows. And I think those days when um, you're thinking, wow, I'm really cooking here, <laughs> you know, this, I love this, look at that, I love that sentence, oh, and I love that one. You go back with a, with a cooler eye, and you see what you were doing is you were filling in, you, you, were, um, you were aiming too directly at something, not letting the character or the language or the, the surprises that have uh, arisen in the story as you're composing it take the lead. And that's good because you know what? It keeps you humble. You know, um, as soon as you're saying, this is great, I love this, um, the, the art says, ah, work a little harder. I love that idea from Eudora Welty. It's almost like embryonic, almost like the last word that you wrote is somehow like the zygote for the next word. Exactly. Right. Sentence by sentence. Yeah. Um, quoting all the Southern writers, I think it's Faulkner who said, um, you know, you, you write the second novel to correct what you weren't able to do in the first. And I think there's something of that, too, moving the language forward. This sentence now didn't quite, how about this? You know, again, that sort of incantatory moving towards meaning um, through language. It's interesting, too, because I think because there is such a rhythm that you hear in your head, part of putting your book in the world could be that other people need to jive with your rhythm. You know, sometimes you, you could hand that rhythm off to someone else and they just don't, they can't dance to it. <laughs> and that's, you have to kind of accept that as a writer too, right? That not everyone's going to get what you're laying down. Yeah. I, I think there's something of that. Um, you know, I, I think the way I think about a reader, I, I, I think about a reader as a kind of collaborator, um, so I would be worried uh, about ever saying, eh, that's okay. I'm not for you. You can say that afterwards, but certainly not in the composition. I, I, I think it's, it's that invitation, come with me, reader. You know, this may be a little hard. This may be a very long sentence. And I'm sorry about that. But I guarantee you, if you just stick with me, we'll get somewhere where we're both in sync. So I think that is part of the effort. I mean, you know, we are about somehow conveying meaning, you know, even if our meaning is there is no meaning. 
<laughs> you know, we're communicating. That that's why we write. Um, even when you write something and then put it in a drawer, you didn't have to write it down. <laughs> so so there. I think I think all of it is still an invitation to a reader. Uh, come with me. I'm gonna try not to get out too far out ahead so that I lose you. But I'm also hoping to convey the promise that um, if you stay with me, we'll get somewhere together. I found through many of the essays as I was taking notes, a word that came up in several of them, which is a very profound idea. And that was the idea of connection. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to ask you, about that if you if you saw that in more than one of your essays it didn't always necessarily mean the same thing it could be the connection of sentences together it could be the connection to the reader the connection to the content the connection to your own doubt but when you hear me say that I'm just wondering what your reaction is well certainly I mean um immediately of course um you know Forster's only connect which every writing student uh, is battered with, I think. Nothing new there. But yeah, I think on many levels, it is the, it's the connection between writer and reader, obviously. That's essential. That's why we write and why we read. And it's the wonderful intimacy of it too, of um, a, a, a reader lending her inner voice to a writer's voice. There really isn't anything else like it. It's just the two of you <laughs> inside your own brain when you're reading uh, the writer and the reader. I guess you could say there are three, the writer, the character, and the reader. That's it. You know, no, no, no commercial breaks, um, no one stepping in to editorialize. It's this wonderful intimacy. And that's, th that connection is essential. It's essential to why we read. And then there's also uh, connections of plot. You know, we read with, uh, I think all of us do, with some maybe even silent expectation that what we are being told, what we are discovering, where we're being led by the writer's voice through a work is full of meaning and purpose. Um, else why are we getting this? So I think the reader, even if the writer's uh, forgotten to do it <laughs> or only stumbled across connections, but the reader is the one who's looking for connections, who's looking for, I'll go with you, but tell me why we're here. I'll live in this character's head for a while, but I want to have a sense of why you've brought me here. So that's the essential connection that leads to those connections that, that are necessary for a sense of plot, those connections that are necessary for a sense of wholeness, the wholeness of art, um, that there is a completeness about this story or this novel that reassures me, the reader, that there was a creative intelligence behind all the choices that were made through this 300 or 400 pages. Um, so they're all levels of, but, but yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, it is at the heart of um, why we read and write. It's, it's making a connection. I guess I'm wondering because writing is such a solitary art and when you don't see like the thousands, hopefully hundreds of thousands and millions of people who pick up your books at a bookstore or whatever, you don't get to meet them all. If, would writing be a different experience for you if you never, ever heard from a reader? <laughs> That's a great question. Gee, I don't know. I think probably not. In some ways, um, when you're composing a piece of fiction, um, your reader is as imaginary as your characters are. Um, and yet you fully believe in your characters um, and, and you hope a reader will. So maybe it's, 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 it's self-delusion, you know, but I always have the sense that there's a reader there. I don't think I necessarily have to meet them in person or hear from them in an email. Um, it's lovely when that happens. But it always surprises me a little bit too. It's I mean, talk about connections. It's a marvelous connection when someone says something about a book and then you realize, oh yeah, we were in that book together. <laughs> this person and I and my characters, we all spend time together. Isn't that nice? It's like you find out you stay at the same hotel in Paris. Oh, I was there, <laughs> you know. But would I not go to that hotel? 
if I was never going to meet someone else who went to that hotel, no, I'd still go. <laughs> so that's a strained metaphor, but <laughs> I guess my sense that once uh, once I finish writing a novel, it's not mine somehow anymore. So to meet someone who's read it, out of necessity, it's published after it's been written. Um, so once I meet somebody who's read it, it's just it's a delightful bonus, but it doesn't feel like what I set out to do or or any in any way the purpose of of my efforts. Well, that that connection ultimately starts with the first sentence, and you write a lot about the first sentence. You write a longer essay, kind of about beginning, middles, and ends of books. And you you talk a lot also about that first sentence and that as writers, there's so much pressure. And oftentimes you think your first sentence is not, it is the first sentence and it turns out to be, it could be on page 85, like how you get people in. So I just wanted to ask you, you know, what you, what you try to tell writers about first sentence, what you have discovered about them, if you have a favorite one. Well, there are so many, as I point out, wonderful, wonderful first sentences. Um, but I think that th- the hard part for for um, uh, beginning writers, or even not so beginning writers, um, is the pressure, you know, that that is put upon that first sentence. Um, and and what I've discovered teaching and and seen it again and again in in writing workshops um, is that once that pressure is relieved, you know, okay, you've started you got a first sentence. You think that's your first sentence. And now you've launched and 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 now you're doing all the hard work of sustaining a story. Um, a better first sentence often arises um, later because that I think that pressure, that self-consciousness um, is somewhat relieved. Uh, it's I mean, it's intimidating, no doubt. Uh, you know, um you're you're making this stuff up you have completely unfettered freedom when you face the blank page. You can start anywhere. You can write about anything. You're beholden to no one. (laughs) And yet, as soon as you write that first sentence, all kinds of things shut down. Your novel, even if it turns out to be a thousand page novel, your novel has begun to shape itself with that first sentence. So yeah, that's, that's intimidating. And there's a lot of self-consciousness that goes into it. And there are flashy beginnings and, and there are what many of us believe at the start as, oh, this is the hook. Oh, yeah, you know, um, start with an explosion, start with a murder, start with a dead body, start with a crazy voice, start with a quotation, someone talking, that's always good. And um, again, once that self-consciousness starts to dissipate in the hard work of sustaining a story, I think language gets freed and you get to know your story a little bit better, even if you thought you knew it fully at the beginning. And and often, um, and as I say, I've seen this so often, you know, a 25-page story and someone in a workshop will say, I love that line on page 13. I think you could start with that. And you see the the writer go, oh, yeah, I could start with that. <laughs> it's almost biblical in a way. Like, just as we were talking about embryonic, it's like a line begets a line begets a line. Like the Bible's filled with pe- people who beget the next people who beget the next people. And sometimes that can be jarring because Sometimes if you realize that your first line is on page 13, you also realize that your story starts on page 13 and you got to toss it. You got to toss stuff. Yes. Yeah. Often. But, um, you know, it, it may be just a, we're kidding ourselves, but, but I do believe and, and have assured a lot of young writers of this, that you had to write those 13 pages or that sentence would never have been born. Yeah, we need all that begetting to get to the heart of the story, you know, to get to the guy we really want to know about. Um, without all that begetting, he wouldn't be there. Um, so it's it's part of the process. It It is, you know, the wonderful mystery, I think, of any creative process. Um, but in the literary arts, it's it's that accumulation of sentences. That's one sentence begetting another. And I think through that process, again, self-consciousness, can fall away um, because you're using 
language, which is um, so autobiographical, so full of your experience of life and who you are, and so unique to each of us, that as those sentences accumulate, I really do see uh, writers tapping into um, their unconscious understanding of the story they thought they were going to tell so that it becomes another story entirely. It's still theirs, but they have reached it through the working at words rather than lying in bed at night or drinking a beer and staring off into space and thinking, here's a great story, I got to write this. Um, the story evolves through its composition. And that's when, you know, that's when the mystery happens and wonderful things happen. With beginning, middles, and ends, is there one that's hardest for you? I, th I think um, at least the consensus uh, among the writers, um, I have discussed this problem with uh, the consensus seems to be the middle is always the most difficult. Um, again, as I say in the essay, a friend of mine called it uh, mobs, middle of book syndrome. And she would always say mobs rhymes with sobs <laughs> because the... Um, you know, has, as difficult as, as it is to, to form that first sentence, there's something freewheeling about the beginning of a work, short story or novel, um, and probably true of poems and plays, uh, that um, rushing, getting it down, setting things up. Um, and, and often by the time you get to the end, there is, if, if, you've, if you've been careful or lucky, um, there's a sense of inevitability. Um, I've had endings just show themselves to me. Just, I didn't know I was going to finish today. And I got to this scene and, and the book told me, that's it. Say no more. Yeah, but the middle, when, when the real work really, you know, all that energy and enthusiasm and um, optimism <laughs> you had for this story, this wonderful novel, this is it, this is the great American novel right here, um, starts to fade a little bit. Um, and you've laid down some of the things that you thought you would lay down and you've discovered some things that you didn't know you would discover. And now it's... Um, are we just going to keep repeating ourselves? Are uh, we going to glide to the ending? Is this going to turn out to be not a 500-page novel, but a 15-page short story? So it's that, yeah, it's that you've evoked the world, but can you keep it spinning? And I think for a lot of readers that I, I hear from a lot of readers who, you know, I got halfway through and I skipped to see how it ended. <laughs> It does feel like so much pressure in in the middle, and and it really has so much to do with story, and mm -hmm. and you have a you know you have a, a lecture in here about story, because we still have to keep things going. It's I mean we've been talking so much about language, but there is no way that you can ignore plot tension story. There's no secret miracle to how you find it. But do you, what, what do you tell your students about, like when they feel lost in terms of what's next? You know, often what happens, and I, and, you know, I speak of my own experience and, and, and what I've seen with my students, that, that kind of the control freak <laughs> in all of us who write, you know, because we want our own worlds and we want our characters to say what we want them to say, you know, um, takes over about midway through um, that I am so determined that this is going to happen because this is what I was planning to have happen. And this is what I was planning that character was going to say. Um, and this was the plot twist that I knew about before I put the first sentence down. And that grows stale. That doesn't feel like discovery anymore to the writer. That, that feels like, um, I think Henry James said it, the filling in a form. So often when, when writers bring that sort of uh, stalled novel to a workshop or to a conference and say, you know, I, I just, I love it. And now I don't know what to do. I know how it's going to end, but uh, you have to toss out the control freak <laughs> in you and say, write something you didn't expect to write. Um, and sometimes that means go back. Is there something that you mentioned? Was there a minor character who has disappeared? Sometimes it's just, um, and this is sort of inside baseball, but um, I've seen it work 
so often to very good effect for, for many successful young writers. Chapter break, space break, change the voice, change the subject, move back in time. Give us something that you didn't give us that we might be curious about. Give us another character's point of view. I know you didn't think this was going to be multiple point of view. That's what you decided way back when, when you started. Challenge yourself to write something you haven't thought about within the scope of the novel. And sort of freeing yourself of the constraints that you that you have willfully taken on for your story um, because you know the story now um, and um, and it's not fresh to you anymore. You know, a writer should always be his or her own first reader. Um, and we know as readers, as soon as you say, oh, I know what's going to happen, and then it happens, it's no fun anymore. Um, so again, it's going back to that, 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 that tap into the mystery, tap into the, the darkness of, I didn't know this was going to happen, and I don't know what I have to say about it. Good. Start there. Do you have a particularly memorable middle of the book crisis? <laughs> oh my gosh, I think I have them every time. <laughs> um, and, and I have a terrible, um, and, and I advise against it, um, I, I have a terrible uh, way of dealing with it is that I always have two novels going at the same time. Um, so often, um, if things are slowing down or I'm not as enthused as I wish I would be um, at some point in the composition of one novel, I start looking, doing a side eye and looking at the other one and saying, well, maybe I'll work on that. That's actually better. Um, um, and, and, and in some ways, it's just a way of stepping away and, and then coming back and saying, uh, oh, I see it now. Or... Um, Jesus, I don't want to read that chapter six again. That means I really need to get rid of chapter six and, and try something else. You write about novels worth abandoning and or salvaging. How do you make that decision? How have you made that for yourself? Or, or what advice have you given to others? Yeah, it's a tricky business, isn't it? Because, um, you know, sometimes the, that... That feeling that I got to get out of this, or this isn't good enough, or this is too much like something else, as I myself have felt, um, is the very thing that that sh that could um, push you to make it your own. You know, um, it it feels too hard at this point. Maybe it's the middle of the book syndrome um, to to salvage this that might be the very incentive to transform something um, that seems familiar into something never seen before. On the other hand, that may be a good instinct as well. <laughs> um, so it's, it's very difficult to tell. I think I've, I've ended up understanding myself and, and advising emerging writers uh, as well that if you're able to give it up, it's probably worthy of abandoning. Um, if you say, I'm going to abandon this, and then you find yourself going back to it, you find the character staying with you, you find yourself maybe even when you're walking the dog, trying to work out the logistics. In other words, the story is not letting you let it go. Then you take a deep sigh and you say, I've got a lot of work to do, but I can't let this story go. Uh, there's a there's a wonderful line that, that I know I have... Um, given to my students um, from the poet Philip Levine. And he said, I write what I was given to write. And I think every, every literary artist at some point comes to that. Um, I write what I was given to write. I can look around at other writers and say, oh, I'm not Tennessee Williams. I don't have all that great Southern stuff behind me. You know, I'm not clever and cool you know, like George Saunders, <laughs> you, know? Um, you know, I don't have that, the, um, the kind of mind that can write the complex and beautifully quiet stories of Alice Munro. It ain't me. It's not what I was given to write. I write what I was given to write. Um, and then I, and, you know, and then I got to deal with that. Um, but, but it's a good thing, I think, for, for young writers to, to confront and to accept. 
Yeah, it is so much about acceptance of self. I mean, it goes way into like the deep psychology of <laughs> of seeing your own failings and your own lack of confidence and that all comes out. Sure. And it's also your own passions, you know, uh, the things that you're interested in. I, you know, I'm interested in this small world of this suburban neighborhood and, and this essential drama, essential only to these ordinary people who lived it. Um, I can't help it. That interests me. My, my, my mind's eye goes to those characters and says, you know, speak to me. Who are you? I want to know. I want to know what you feel. Even if your feelings are kind of pedestrian, I still want to know. Um, it's what I was given to write. And and one of your last essays that sort of comes back to what we were talking about in the beginning about how language is acquired through experience and that's what comes out is you you write about people saying that you're a Catholic writer but how how Catholicism gives your characters language for what they feel and the longing of Christianity and that in many ways that was the lens that you learned life through. And you talk mm-hmm. a lot about doubt and faith and you write the process of faith and the creative process, both a struggle to apprehend something. So I just wanted to ask you about doubt and faith. And it was, it was, I really loved that, that essay. It, it seems to me, um, and maybe this is just, you know, the, the skimming off the top of, of our um, common conversation. Um, but, but so often I, I hear um, people of faith dismissed as robots, as people who have stopped thinking, you know, who accept dogma so that they don't have to make any of their own decisions. Um, and my experience has been so much the opposite. Um, the people of faith that I know are always questioning. Um, you know, their faith depends on it. They, they are also willing to entertain mystery and also willing to entertain that, that there are things that they won't figure out, that they won't apprehend. And yet they're constantly uh, after it, looking for it. Um, you know, prayer is not just the repetition of the same words. Um, I think it's also an edging toward understanding, um, even of things that, that people of faith believe will be and remain beyond their understanding. And, and, I, and I do see that in the creative process. I, I see that, that sense of um, we're moving towards something. Again, it goes back to Faulkner. You write your second novel because of what the first novel didn't achieve. You keep at it. You know, it's not that if you felt you got it, if you felt I have reached perfection, I don't understand why you would ever write another <laughs> another sentence. Got it. Stay away. Back off. You're done. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, it is about exploring the mystery, about questioning again and again, but always with a sense that maybe there's a way to, to apprehend some kind of answer, not a finished product, not a, okay, shut your mind down, um, but some sense um, that comes and goes. Um, my, one of the quotes I absolutely love, um, again, that I've used so often with students is, is from Saul Bellow's Nobel Prize acceptance speech, um, how uh, you know, our, the way we understand the world, our understanding comes and goes. Um, it disappears. We think we get it and then it disappears and it leaves us in doubt, but we've had a glimpse We've had a glimpse of some understanding, and so we continue to pursue it. Um, I think that's what the creative artist does. Um, it's we've had a glimpse. And, and the other parallel that, that I think is sort of marvelous, and again, maybe it's, um, it's part of uh, maybe we don't talk enough about the mystery um, in, inherent in the creative arts. Um, you know, And that is when we read, we understand without question, you know, um, that that this novel, this world, this story um, has been created by an intelligence. You know, that that sense that um, that this 
everything in this has been in this book, in this story has been put there by someone who I may never see, never hear from. Um, but I understand that. And so because I understand that, I look for meaning because a creative intelligence has put these things down. And so I look for meaning. As a reader, will I always get the meaning? Will I always understand it? Maybe I'll have to read three or four times before reading the meaning begins to become clear to me. And even then, I might think, I think I understand what Garcia Marquez was getting at. <laughs> um, I'm not sure I have it pinned down, but I think I understand. I think I understand what Virginia Woolf was saying there. Um, I think I understand that. But the fact that we pursue the understanding is because we understand, we know that this world has been created by someone. So there's a clear parallel to me, to people of faith who look around the created world that we all live in and say, you know, there, there must be meaning because there has to be a creative intelligence behind this. Um, so we look for meaning. Do we find it? Not always. Um, if we think we find it, does it last through every experience? Not always. Um, but there is that assurance that meaning must be there because this has been created for me. Um, so it, it seems to me quite an obvious that, that you know, there's no, per, no reader who's an atheist about writers. There's no reader who says, I believe in reading. I believe in this novel but I don't think writers really exist. Um, it's absurd. <laughs> so for people of faith, I think it's a, it, it's, it's a very parallel logic. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? I, th I thought I would do something pertinent in some ways to what, what we've been saying. Um, Pale Horse, Pale Rider by Catherine Ann Porter. And I think I've, I've mentioned this in one of the essays as well is, is an, a, a novella, if you want to call it that, or a long short story that I've loved um, for decades um, and, and have taught. Um, and I found myself thinking about it a good deal during the lockdown with COVID, since it's a story that takes place during the, the last pandemic, the 1918 flu. Uh, and, and it's a love story, young couple, um, you know, on the brink, not only World War One, but but surrounded by uh, this pandemic. Um, I thought um, because Catherine's story was coming back to me so much during lockdown, I thought, um, what would that story look like in 2021? Um, what would, um, you know, how much has changed? Uh, one of the things that, that I cited this um, in, in one of the essays, once when I taught it, and there's a marvelous line um, when Miranda and Adam, the young couple, are talking. She's coming down with the flu, um, and and there's a, a quoted line. She says, "Don't you just love life?" Um, and when I was teaching the novel, uh, and this was some years ago, my graduate students were like, "That's a horrible line. Nobody could write a line like that. Nobody would say. Nobody." Um, no millennial would say to a lover, don't you just love life, unless they were doing it ironically. So I thought a lot about what would, um, what would that story look like in, in the current pandemic um, and tried my own hand at it. So this is how Catherine um, begins her story. In sleep, she knew she was in her bed but not the bed she had lain down in a few hours since, and the room was not the same, but it was a room she had known somewhere. Her heart was a stone lying upon her breast outside of her. Her pulses lagged and paused, and she knew that something strange was going to happen, even as the early morning winds were cool through the lattice, the streaks of light were dark blue, and the whole house was snoring in its sleep. So that's her beautiful, again, evoking a world, her beautiful opening. So how do you pay homage uh, to, to the, a beautiful story like that um, and, and update it? Um, so, so this is a story called Post, which is 
only a tip of the hat to Catherine Ann Porter um, and uh, a COVID version, I think, I hope, of Pale Horse, Pale Rider. Um, and here's my Mira, uh, my version of Miranda. And this is kind of what you found hard or tricky to write. The tricky part of um, paying homage, certainly, and again, I think we're all influenced by everything we've read and um, and every writer we've loved, um, uh, is is making it your own. You know, um, to begin with the homage and yet to let the characters be themselves. Um, not only to change the details, update the the outside things. Um, so so how you know sort of that line of acknowledging um, the tradition that you're writing in the realistic fiction, a young couple, um, a, a pandemic, um, and yet individualizing it. Um, so uh, this was this is at the beginning of the story. Um, but but that sense of um, the beginning of things and and a different pandemic. So yeah, the difficult part was not to stay too closely to to Catherine's Miranda, and yet to make it clear <laughs> that this is homage. The nook where she had placed her bed got the morning light from the next room, and then just a sliver of sunset between the buildings that were her west-facing view. It seemed farcical in retrospect, the way the shortening days of midwinter, what prior to this would have been any normal stretch of shorter days, made a caricature of themselves as they came and went across the foot of her bed. Like an old time comedy sketch featuring a long corridor with multiple doors, a peep of pale light, then a burst of madcap yellow, then gloom, then fiery red, then the same darkness out of which the mischievous morning would once again appear, cartwheel evilly across the foot of her bed, glower, vanish. She watched all of it from under the heaviest sleep she had ever known, a dream that she'd pulled a slab of sidewalk up under her chin. At one point, she said out loud, having no idea how many days had gone by, this is hilarious. The sirens, not nearly as bad as they were at the beginning, compelled her to get up now and then, take an Advil, eat some toast, get back into bed. So what I wanted to do in distinguishing 2021 or 2020, I guess um, this was the middle of the story takes place um, in the bad times of the pandemic in Brooklyn, um, was to give that 2020 sense of comic irony that Catherine Ann Porter's character portends but doesn't quite have um so so whereas pale horse pale rider begins with um miranda waking up from a dream of of trying to outride death my mira in her story um wakes up with an idea this is comedy this this is comedy um so now my character begins to veer off from her model, um, and uh, and the story proceeds. <laughs> Where do you write? Here in my office, uh, most of the time. Uh, on occasion, um, I, I, I might try to sneak away to to another place, but but mostly it's right here every day. What do you do, or where do you go to get away from writing? You know, life takes you away. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I walk the dog <laughs> and um, when, when the times allow, have dinner with friends, um, sit on the back patio, uh, go off and read. Um, there, there's never a, I, never a real challenge to, um, to get away from it. Um, the challenge is always to get back to it. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My agent and my editor are... Um, are these days my only first readers. Um, I think I have a sense, I, I've, 
I don't know that I've ever um, depended on another writer or a friend or spouse, (laughs) especially not a spouse, uh, to to be a first reader. Um, I I think there's something about the enclosed mind space of of composing a novel that that I'm always reluctant to leave. Um, and, And so in some ways to have as a first reader someone who for me, sort of embodies the professional part of this career. Um, someone who is the the first step towards releasing whatever I've been composing into the public. Um, that's sort of enough for me. Um, I, 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 I like to have it um, hermetically sealed, um, just me and the characters and my imaginary reader for as long as possible. How have you dealt with rejection? I would say very well, <laughs> except not long ago. Um, my friend, the novelist, Matt Clam, reminded me, um, I think, gosh, what was the year? 2013, um, when my novel, Someone, um, was published and it was long listed for the uh, National Book Award. And Matt sent me an email and said, oh, congratulations. I really think you're going to get it. Um, and I said, thank you very much. And then didn't make the short list. And Matt wrote to me and said, oh, bad call, bad call. And I don't remember this, but he reminded me. I replied, F-U-C-K-E-M. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that was nasty. <laughs> you know? He was very shocked. He, he doesn't think... Um, such words even enter my mind. And I did not remember um, sending that email. So maybe I don't deal with rejection as well as I like to believe. <laughs> eh, F them. <laughs> and what is your favorite word? I was going to say, um, and, and, and maybe there, it's, I'm honest about this, um, having this, this book of essays come out and, and really for the first time um, having in book form uh, pages in which that first person is me, um, not a character, um, has, has made me a little bit self-conscious. And one of the reasons I think I was hesitant to put these together in the first place, um, I'm not used to writing, um, personally. Um, and, uh, there's a, there's a quote from, from Seamus Heaney that when this was bothering me, I wrote down and I've, I've, um, I put up, uh, right here by my desk, um, and Seamus Heaney talked about how surprised he was to find that he had become a textual creature with the same name as yourself. Um, and I sort of love that, that even the I in those essays um, is just a textual creature that has the same name as myself, which has brought me to the word textual, sort of a lovely word. And maybe we can popularize it by... Um, by implying how much it sounds like sexual, <laughs> you know. Um, but I was just looking um, this little uh, Catherine Ann Porter story, which I called "post." Um, post is a wonderful word, especially now. Think of all the meanings it has, and how we long for we long for post pandemic. Um, some of us longed for post the last president, <laughs> post war. Um, and then all the meanings of posting, um, uh, it's sort of a nice word and pillar to post, um, it just strikes me textual is a, is a marvelous word, but, um, when you engage with the word post within a text, that's also a nice word. And you can't get away from the internet culture with both of them because textual has text and post is what people do all the time. Right. And isn't language wonderful how it accumulates meaning um, through our experience of it? Um, isn't that great? I mean, you know, 50 years ago, um, if I published a story called Post, um, nobody would be thinking about posting on the Internet. And now it has that extra meaning. Aren't we lucky? <laughs> we have such a good language. Well, thank you so much for your time. I'm so appreciative. Thank you. This has been fun. If you like today's show with Alice McDermott, author of the craft book, What About the Baby? Check out my two earlier interviews with her on her novels, Someone and The Ninth Hour. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of nearly 400 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. 
You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips for my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Evie Wilde, Susan Orlean, Charlotte Wood, and Thriti Umagar. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.